I was thinking as the whole country, even beyond that, took to its knees, and I use it in the general term, to pray for a football player who um, almost died with a heart episode, you know, on the field. And these men who were uh, shaken so that they couldn't do anything else because of that. And he says, continues to say, pray for me. And everybody's putting up, pray for me, pray for me. I don't know his soul's condition. You know, We will go to a service on Friday and say goodbye to Vicki. But death comes to everyone. And this earthly existence, you know, whether his, his buy toys for the underprivileged kid get $10 million, you know, isn't going to make his soul any more satisfied in glory or not. That's really the key, you know. People dying all the time, and it's their relationship to Christ, not how the world acknowledges. And I think we understand that. But I was just taken back by, you know, um, how even official, you know, uh, pray for, pray for, you know, are we supposed to pray, you know, is that right? You know, uh, and yet we recognize that. James 2, and follow along with your eyes, I'm going to read verses 8 through 13. If ye fulfilled the royal law according to the scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. Pray our God to bless these words to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we'll approach um, your word once again, this letter of uh, so long ago. Yet it stands as, again, uh, of powerful truth, not only to us here this morning, but to all to whom it has been proclaimed. For it is indeed the word of God. May we handle it, receive it with such an understanding and with such care and love. And as it is brought forth to our ears and implanted within our hearts, may it produce your intended purpose. Keep, Father, the wicked one from any inroads and distractions, our minds and our hearts to these things. And uh, when we're finished, we will indeed rejoice in what you've done. In Christ's name, amen. I recall a number of years ago, as I had to take a trip to Kenya for a graduation, the Bible college here in Nairobi, uh, the flight leaves real late in Philadelphia and goes on to London. And then you get a couple of hours and then London on to Nairobi. So it's a, a daylight flight, uh, arrive in Nairobi, thing like six in the evening or something like that. But I recall, and, and this occasion, 
I had a window with uh, uh, no wing, you know. I could see the, uh, the, the ground. And as we flew over the vast Sahara Desert, and it is miles and miles and miles of sand, nothing. And I recall looking out, and all of a sudden, I saw part of a structure, you know, some little wall like this or this, you know, like that. And I said, whoa, you know, and it, my imagination caught, you know, I says, oh, if we could just go down, you know, and see what that is, maybe an old fort from the uh, French Foreign Legion, you know, or an old church or, or something like that. I, I, I love archaeology. And as they get down there and they dust away the pieces and they see the mosaics or they see the pottery and they see the various things, history right out there. And uh, yet within a minute's time, we were gone and, and never to be seen again as far as I was concerned. As we come to God's word, uh, there are times indeed when we fly at altitude and we go over uh, a passage, a couple passages, a section, um, and not necessarily pick out a, a lot of things. And there's profit to that. There's profit as we go over and we see a family or an individual or a nation. And you want the big picture. You want a, a greater expanse uh, of it. There, and that, there's profit in that. But there are times when we need to go down. And we need to go low. We need to go slow. Uh, we need to get out and we need to kick the sand around a bit. Get our sh shovels out and our brushes and, and move aside the things that are there and, and, and see what it is, uh, to see how it fits together. Um, because all scripture, word by word, is given for our profit. And today is no exception to that. Um, I, the passage is... Is, is, is a slow walk, um, and I trust you'll stick with it. Uh, it may not be easy for some, but nonetheless, I think it is most important. As you recall, last Lord's Day, we began with this topic of being a respecter of persons, showing favoritism, principles of bias, principles of prejudice, and, and how it was talked about very clearly by James with a realistic example of people coming into the church, respecting the person who was uh, enamored with himself and showing off his wealth and, and giving him the prime attention and the poor man comes in and has really nothing to offer except get out of here and stay way over there, you know, being the respecter of persons. And we talked about how that was. We basically concluded that, as James tells them, that believers were not to be respecter of persons because God is no respecter of persons. God looks upon us and as vast as a variety of our backgrounds and our personalities and all that we are, you know, thank the Lord that he has chosen us without being respecter of persons. And therefore, we as his children should have no place of being a respecter of persons also. Now, obviously, it's not a topic that we all of a sudden get and say, ah, no more favoritism with me. I'm going to be handling everything perfectly well. We don't. It's a lifelong process. But it's a matter of recognizing what James is bringing forth here. So those first seven verses that we looked at, 
looked upon apparently were not enough. And James felt that more needed to be said because this is an all-encompassing issue. It's an all-encompassing picture that needs to be attached. Something that is ingrained in the very fiber of mankind. So James adds more. Verse 8. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, thou shalt love the Lord, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. Remember, we're taking our time. We're kicking the sand. We're shoveling aside, dusting off a, a piece of pottery or a, a, a little bit of this wall to reveal the things that are down below. As I come to this verse, what jumps out to me it's like one of these eureka moments, royal law. And it stands out because there is no other place that it's mentioned within the New Testament. The royal law sounds important, doesn't it? James wants to get their attention, but he wants to focus their attention upon something that is important. And when he says royal, what do you think about? It's the law of the king. The law of the sovereign God of the universe. And he says, this isn't just something. This is the royal law. The king has presented it. I think of that, and it's not a law that could be repealed. It's not a law that the Supreme Court of the United States is going to go and debate. It's not a law whether people can say, well, I think I should obey this, or I'm not going to obey this, or whatever. It is perfectly understandable. Yet... What is it? What is the royal law? It is nothing more, nothing less, than a complete summary of all that God has presented to us. The all-encompassing scripture text of that which he has provided for us within our Bibles. It is the sum and substance of the complete word of God. Mind-boggling, you know? Mind-boggling. And yet, what's provided for us within the Word of God is a better understanding how it is applied. There was an occasion in Matthew 22 when the Jewish leaders were trying to trick Jesus, and it's kind of hilarious, those who were lawyers of the time trying to trick the lawgiver, you know, those who thought they had mastered the Old Testament law coming to Jesus, and we're going to trick the man who is really the one who made the law. So Matthew 22, he says, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Ah, of the law itself. Think of all that is there, the hundreds and hundreds of laws of the Old Testament. And they had it memorized. You know, they had it memorized. Jesus says unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You know, the volley came from the lawyer, you know, and Jesus grabs it and he's just right back into their court. He says, there isn't a particular great commandment that is above all the rest, but he says, it is the relationship of these two commands, vertical, 
loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and horizontally loving your neighbor as yourself. And then verse 40 of that passage, he says, on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus says, if you want a summary of everything of law, they all are founded or based upon or tied together with these two commandments. All of the law in the prophets, the Old Testament, everything is summarized in those two. If you've mastered that, if you handle that, you've gotten it all. And obviously, they were a little bit on the tongue-tied side. That became the picture of the royal law. Now, in verse 8 of our text, why didn't James say, If ye fulfilled the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. You see what I added? I added the first commandment that Jesus said is a great commandment. He says, uh, according to James, he says, the royal law is loving thy neighbor as thyself. But why didn't James add, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind? Because those are the two that Jesus put together. It was purposely left out, but I think it is showing the fact of the matter that you can't really show or others to see how much you love God. It's a heart matter, isn't it? You can put on airs. You can be dressed up. You can sit here, um, uh, sing the songs, and read the Bible and do all of those things. He says, I love God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind. Eh, nobody knows. I'm just saying that. It's all a pretense. But James says the other part Loving your neighbor as yourself, <laughs> there's no disguising that. You can't, you'll, be, you'll be seen eventually from the heart it comes out exactly what these two matter. James mentions here, he speaks of, of these particular truths, but actually those two truths are one. Loving God with all my heart, soul, and mind, and loving my neighbor as myself are in one. Listen to what John said, 1 John 4. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? For he that loveth not his brother who he sees, who is with him, how can he say, I love God, and I don't see him? So James says, these two are intricately tied together. If I can't handle the matter of loving my neighbor as myself, then how can I say I love God? They are bound together in one. <laughs> John talks about the matter of hating his brother. If a man say, I love God, but hateth his brother... And obviously, this applies to the household of faith, brothers and sisters in Christ. Usually, that's a New Testament statement that we, everybody would agree on. Uh, 
how can I, uh, how, if a man say I love God but hates his fellow Christian, you know, that's not true. But in the bigger picture, that word brethren also refers to mankind in general. An attitude that I have to not just believers, but to mankind in general. Well, those church folks, sure. Okay, I'll try and love them more. I understand. I've stepped on some toes. I need to get past that. That's what he's saying. If I love God, hate my brothers and sisters in Christ, I need to address that. And for Christians, there's probably not a problem with that. But those people, those other people, do you know what they did to me? You know what they did to my family? This is personal. Those people, that group, or that family, or them, or those, or whatever, whatever category, whatever characteristics we want to bring out. Nope. I pray my God will send nothing but hellfire and brimstone on them. You know? If I say I love my God, and I hate my brother, and I hate people, generally speaking, God judge them. It shows I'm a liar. Because how can I say I love God and act in a fashion that is opposite to that? But I say unto you, which hear, love your enemies, do good to them which hate you, bless them that curse you, and pray for them which despitefully use you. A little later in the passage, but love ye your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great in heaven, and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Words by Jesus. Earth-shattering principles brought by the words of Christ himself to those who were listening. Loving your enemies? You know, those are good Christian words we talk about. And boy, it's, it's, it's those people. It's hard to do that. Did anybody listen to what Jesus said? Did anybody obey? Read your New Testament and follow the life of the apostles. Men who were in question about all things that were going on, testing and wondering and so forth. But after the resurrection, they became men of power and of courage, willing to suffer, willing to give of themselves but never to show hatred. Jesus himself, if you think of an example, in all of his life, you'd only see his, his one occasion, or actually the two occasions, beginning and the ending of his ministry, when he came into the temple and turned over the tables for the money exchangers, you know, a righteous indignation. But beyond that, Christ exhibited exactly what he was expecting his apostles to follow. Those people... Your enemies, do good to those who hate you, those who despitefully use you, and so forth and so on. The movement of the gospel has only been preceded by the movement of the Spirit of God. And God's Spirit has worked in marvelous ways. I, I'm reading missionary biographies, especially 
going back to the 1800s and early 1900s, you know, the struggles that those men and women faced, the families and so forth, going out to islands in the Pacific, going out to meet the mainland China and the, the wars that went on and the people that were slaughtered, Christians, because the gospel needed to go up, but not in hatred for them, but a continued movement of the gospel. They were being obedient to Jesus. Author and Bible teacher, the late Warren Wiersbe, wrote something about this, and I think it's going to be helpful. He said, Christian love does not mean that I must like a person and agree with him on everything. Phew, makes you feel a little better, huh? I may not like his vocabulary or his habits, and I may not want him for an intimate friend. Christian love means treating others the way God has treated me. It is an act of the will, not an emotion that I try to manufacture. Loving my enemies, we think of the emotional aspect because we deal with them emotionally. But Wiersbe says, no, it's an act of the will. I must say, this is something I have to do because I am a believer and they are not. He says, the motive is to glorify God. The means, in other words, the way we can do it, is the power of the Spirit. One of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. The display of what God has put within us is my means to accomplish it. As I act in love toward another, I may find myself drawn more and more to him. And I may see him, through Christ, what he qualifies that before were hidden to me. Also, Christian love does not leave the person where it finds him. Love should help the poor man do better. Love should help the rich man make better use of his God-given resources. Love always builds up. Hatred tears down. We only believe as much of the Bible as we practice. I stuck that on my Facebook page this week. You know. We only believe as much of the Bible as we practice. If I don't believe it, if I'm not practicing it, practicing it then I, I just leave it out. If we fail to obey the most important words, love thy neighbor as thyself, then we will not get, they will not do any good with the lesser matters of the word. He's saying that the most important is from the words of Christ. He says, Jesus says, this is, God says, this is, loving God with all my heart and soul and mind and loving my neighbor as, my, as myself, that is the most important. And if I'm not practicing it, then how will I handle those things which are of lesser importance within the scriptures? It's key. We've been digging around this principle of love for neighbors and enemies, for brethren, for a few minutes now. But I want us to jump back to the text and see what else he has to say. If you fulfilled the royal law according to the scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. I like that. You're the good, you know, at the end there. Ye do well. Actually, it's like, ye do excellently. It's, it's just, it's a great uplift here, what he's presented. For 
loving your enemies is loving them as God loves them. It is being an imitator of God. If God loved those enemies, if he loved me before I came to him, as ugly as I was, then indeed somebody must have loved me sufficiently to come and to present the gospel to me and pray for me and to walk me through as it was. It was the example of the Apostle Paul himself. Here's the Pharisee of the Pharisees, the man who had mastered the Old Testament law, demanding other people obey it, searching out Christians, seeking to destroy them, imprisoning them, and then all of a sudden, road to Damascus, change of life, change of heart, scales falling from his eyes and he sees everything brand new. And people are no longer afraid of Saul, Paul, but they all of a sudden see his character as being totally different. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. God says, that smells good. What he's doing, what's accomplishing. Walking in love is just that, well, I love God, I'm, I'm, I'm obeying my Bible and this and that. I'm, I'm honoring you, God. But is it being displayed this horizontally? Am I interacting in such a fashion that others might see it? Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. What a testimony. What a glorious testimony from what he was unto what he became. And that was beautiful. All right. I trust we found something profitable in this particular section, this, this section of verse 8. You, you dust away the, <clears throat> the part of the floor, and, and there were some uh, diggings around... Uh, uh, Pompeii, uh, after Mount Vesuvius. Remember that guy, you know, blow up, encapsulated the, the whole town there. And as they're digging in, they're finding, taking away layer after layer, and they're finding these beautiful mosaic floors and walls, the paintings that the Romans had in those times. And so we've come through verse 8, and we've, we've got more, but there's, but there's more to be had that James provides us for more profitable. But, verse 9, if ye have respect to persons. Hmm. Let me introduce this thought, and you probably didn't grasp it in reading it. This is hypothetical, okay? James is not saying that, I know this is taking place, but he says, for the big picture, but if ye have respect to persons, hypothetically speaking, if you've fulfilled the royal law, and you've done all of these things, and you've got the great attaboy, but if that's taking place, if you have respect of persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law is transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he, said, for he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if he commit no adultery, yet if he killed, you're become transgressors of the law. Some weeks ago, I made 
reference to our first parents in the Garden of Eden and that interaction that they had when uh, all of a sudden the serpent comes and presents unto them truth and all of a sudden Eve goes and takes the fruit and takes the bite and gives it to Adam, you know, and then they meet up with God. And the interaction that took place was, uh, you know, I'm in trouble. Um, I'm trouble for the things that had happened. Um, you could almost hear them saying, yes, I ate the forbidden fruit, but it was only one bite. You know, I, I, I did it, but it was only one bite and it really wasn't much. And can't you consider all that we've done up to this point? And we don't know how long Adam and Eve had been there on the earth. You know, we named the animals. You know, we, we took care of the place. We watched over it. We did everything perfectly in obedience. And not one, only one tiny bite. And you're going to hold us to this? Now, that, that's a version of your Bible that you're not going to find. But I'm, you know, hypothetically putting it in there, you know. Can you imagine presenting that to God? We also mentioned some weeks ago about Moses and the children of Israel with Aaron. They're in the middle of the desert, out of water. Uh, The multitude is grumbling to no end, and Moses' sister Miriam had died. They're all thirsty, they're all hungry, you know, and ah! And so he and Aaron go to the tent and they pray, and God says, you just go out, take your staff, speak to the rock, and, and, and uh, the rock will bring forth water. And then he goes out and he blows his stack. And he hits the rock. Because of God's grace, he supplies the water. Well, God said after that episode, he says, because you failed to obey me, failed to honor me in front of the people, you're not going to enter the promised land. You get to that point and you say, you know what? I just lost my temper just in that, that five-minute stretch. You don't know what I've done for you all of these years. You don't know how it's been leading these people. I faithfully took them through the wilderness, put up with their grumbling. My sister's dead. My, my, my mouth is parched. I'm hungry, too. I wish we didn't have to live in the desert. I've done all of these things year after year after year after year. And just because I lost my temper for five minutes... Is this the thanks I get? Now, thankfully, Moses didn't say that. But I think there are occasions that we come along and we see where there's an injustice being made when we perceive a small sin as being covered over by a multitude of good works. Can't you just allow me to recognize how good I have been? In the matters of favoritism and bias and prejudice and discrimination, those things really are incomparable to adultery, aren't they? Or murder? You know, I don't know, and I'm not going to ask if any of you were murderers, all right? Or if you're going to, any desire to commit murder today, anything like that, you know? We're not going to go into what Jesus interprets the uh, adultery and murder and all those other things, but the idea is there are there are huge sins, you know. But, but you know what? I've not done that. All I did was show some favoritism. All I did was just have a little bit of discrimination, a little bit of prejudice here towards this. And you're going to hold me guilty for that? 
And he comes along and he says, because you had done one, you in essence have been guilty of all. J. Vernon McGee writes, the law condemns discriminating between the rich and the poor. Someone will say, well, I didn't commit murder and I haven't committed adultery. You haven't? Listen to what James says. For whosoever keepeth the whole law yet offend in one point is guilty of all. Key. What a pressure. I haven't done those things. I've been good for all ten of these. You know? None of those broken. But boy, when it came time for, you know, in my mind and my actions, I perceived that this and I acted according to this. That's small potatoes. But James says, no, you're guilty of the whole law and you deserve the whole judgment upon God. God doesn't grade on a curve. Brethren, there are people who think that. There are people who think that they're going to enter into glory simply because the amount of good that they've lived in their life and been obedient and honorable and all these other things surely must outweigh what little bit I've, I've, you know, it has to, God has to balance those things out. It surely has to come to that. Mentally, take your age and multiply it times the number of days of the year. Well, I've done it ahead of time for me, and I come up with the ballpark of 27,000. Okay? What if I committed one sin a day? 27,000 sins. And again, I'm not a murderer, you know. I have stolen some things in the past, yes. We won't go to any of the others, thank you. But what if my sin measured one minute, one sin, one per minute? You know, and that's possible, thought, word, and deed. You know? I can go through a minute and I can commit all kinds of sins all crammed in there. For me, it ends up being 14 billion, a little over 14 billion if I've sinned one minute. And I may have a minute where I'm not totally honoring God in thought, word, and deed, you know? or whether I'm not you know, treating my, my brethren, uh, people in the world with with, with a perfect peace that, that deals with them in thought, word, and deed. You know what? We don't have a leg to stand on, do we? It stinks. The weight of responsibility and the weight of justice. So if that's the case, who am I to be a respecter of persons? Who am I to evaluate one over the other simply because of what I perceive with my eyes and come in between my ears and what my noodle all of a sudden puts together? You know, what I conclude. So speak ye and so do, as they that be will shall be judged by the law of liberty, for he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth in judgment. He says, we are to be merciful rather than judgmental. And obviously, 
It is a rough road to hoe. That's not the way we've been raised. That's not the way the world around us, even as those who, who James was writing to back in this first century. The Jewish background was very clear. The demands of the law had to be kept and, and, and they lived under a pharisaical rule that said every time you did this, there is this, and you could only walk so far, and you can only do this, and so forth and so on. And all of a sudden, because they became Christians, they're going to think differently? No. And so we're raised, and we've been ingrained with this idea of evaluating everybody. And, and, and it's not a bad idea sometimes, but it's how I conclude what I do, what I do with that. When we become a respecter of persons, who's damaged? Well, we are, first of all. We damage our health. We damage our relationships. We damage our reputations. We damage our spiritual sensitivity. We damage our future. And as a result, we are in constant need of repair. Constant need of repair, which we can only receive from the very one whose law we had broken. That's mercy. God, forgive me. You're a merciful God. I do not get what I deserve. And we plead the blood of Christ. He says, I'm, I'm a child of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we should know the better. Because I know him, and he's saved me, and he's redeemed me, yes. But that doesn't give me a license to act the same way as the world acts around me. For this very reason, we need to thank God continually for his mercy and his forgiveness and for his grace and for his patience. We need to clothe ourselves with the righteousness of Christ on a daily basis. Who am I? Paul says, I am nothing. It is Christ that liveth within me. And the longer we come and we evaluate who we are and the, and the, the minuteness of, of this law, of this book, the minuteness of the details, how it grabs my heart and says, this, you are guilty. We realize the power of the forgiveness was given by Christ upon the cross. But that has given us access that we might continually have that rest within our souls, asking for his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace and his patience, just not words. Sometimes we get into religious circles and we throw out Oh, his grace and his mercy, and we just pass those around without thinking what it is. We started out our service with holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We go to Isaiah 6 and we see the, the throne room, and, and there in the cherubim, the seraphim, surrounding his throne, holy, 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 day and night. And Isaiah says, You, who am I? <laughs> you know take a coal off the, off the altar and touch it to my mouth, burn away the, 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 the sinful man that I am. Christ has done that. Evaluate, brethren, our walk with our Lord. It's a daily walk. Keep close to him. Allow the Spirit of God to speak to our hearts with the things that are necessary as we see each other. Obviously, draw near to him, but may our drawing near to him produce in us a product that the world does not know. Let's pray. And so, Father, we um, close these few verses 
as we said, um, trying to create a picture of something that occurred long ago and with the excitement of our hearts to see more clearly than what we had seen before. And it's not a picture necessarily that we enjoy because it speaks to us as we truly are, sinners deserving of great judgment, but we have been saved by grace. We receive that which we don't deserve. And so therefore, Father, forgive us for the errors of our ways. Thank you for your love displayed and time and time again. May we frequent our prayer closet. May our relationship with you be not on a long tether, but be close by. As you turn right, that we would turn right. As you turn left, that we would turn left. That we would be right there, close to you. Help us to follow such. And we thank you, Father, for the work of your spirit, uh, the power of your word, as it makes it alive in our day. In Christ's name, amen.